Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is one that was very enjoyable and special for me and different in a couple of different ways. So Nathaniel Friedman, first time guest for me. I've been a fan of his for a long time. Many of you will know him as Bethlehem Shoals on Free Darko, the now defunct but still amazing website. And we had an idea of what we wanted to do, of what we wanted to talk about. And then we just started talking. And so instead of, I kept in the very beginning of the conversation, which actually incidentally was the first time Daniel and I have ever talked. So this was just the opening of our first conversation. I mean, we've interacted on Twitter and email for years, but I thought it was cool to just have from the beginning, we just go from the jump because we had just finished watching Spurs Pelicans, I believe it was. And so we started talking about Kawhi and that was before the whole Rockets game and before he took his place in the MVP conversation. And I deliberately did not include timestamps in this because we go all over the place and I thought it would be more fun to just not say where we hit it, to just appreciate things for what they are. And amazing conversation goes run, runs about two hours, one of the heftier ones that I've done in recent time and brought to you by three sponsors, one of which I'm thrilled to have as a new sponsor, Harry's a great razor and you can check out their trial set by going to harrys.com slash real gm you get a, bl- a handle a five blade cartridge and shaving gel for free plus a small shipping charge our friends at movement watches mvmtwatches.com slash real gm can get beautiful timepieces for a reasonable price plus if you go to the, with the url 15 percent off plus free returns plus free shipping and then SeatGeek. Another longtime sponsor of Real Jam Radio, huge fan, way that I personally buy and sell tickets to events, concerts, theater, whatever else. You go to the free SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and you enter the promo code REALGM for a $20 rebate on your first purchase. But the highlight here, I mean, among every other thing else, is the wide-ranging conversation with Nathaniel Friedman. And I will note that partially because I couldn't edit everything out. There's a little bit more mature language than I usually go in there, but it was more mature before I edited some of it out. So it shouldn't be too much of a problem, but there's a little bit of that in there and I'm giving you fair warning. So it's not, it's not grizzly dunked on is, is rougher than this. So just wanted to let you know, just cause it, I try to keep it, try to keep it shiny and clean for real gym radio. So I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. I've, I, I mean, it was one of my favorite ones I've done. Hey, it's Danny LaRue. Hey, Danny, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Just trying to... Someone just said, if the Spurs get the number one seed in the West, is Kawhi an MVP? And I was like, wait a minute. That's kind of hard logic to disagree with. It's an interesting thing, because I, I feel like his candidacy has been really underrated. Be, not not necessarily mm-hmm. because of the team consideration, but just because he does it in such a different way. But yeah, I mean that could lead to it beco- like instantly becoming not underrated because then all of a sudden you get the the best player on the best team narrative sort of thing. And he also it's like I think he does have that best two way player in the thing going for him. Like people recognize that he's that Kawhi Leonard. Right. You know, it's, it's he has a Colin card even if he's sort of under the radar stylistically. I think it's he's he's not like an unknown factor in the NBA anymore. Like, I think everyone knows how good he is. It's the question of how exciting they find thinking about him. And I feel like 
Westbrook, I, it's weird. I feel like the bloom is kind of off the rose with Westbrook, and that's why Harden crept in. And then obviously, then like the whole thing's wide open. Because I remember at the beginning of the year, it was like, oh, well, it's going to be Westbrook. We have his triple double. And now it seems like it could be a little more wide open. And that's when something like this does become a factor. The other big piece of that is I think there's a big group of voters that are uncomfortable voting somebody that they absolutely do not think is the best player in the league as the MVP. And. Mm-hmm. I th- I don't think there are many people who feel that either Westbrook or Harden is the best player in the league. So yeah, maybe yeah, it's, maybe maybe it's not Kawhi. Maybe it's I I would say it's probably LeBron. But at least I would say Kawhi has a better case than either of them. Yeah, I mean to me Westbrook and Harden are kind of like they're situational MVPs. It's like Nash, you know, like mm-hmm. was Nash the best player in the league? No, not at all. But was he in a situation that like optimized him in a way that made him the most dangerous player in the league at that year? Sure, that's definitely the case with Harden. You know, like Harden has not been this player until D'Antoni put him in the system. And Westbrook is just like a weird, like historic accident almost. And I think it goes back to the whole, like, obviously it's difficult to say, like, who's the best in the league. But like Westbrook is very good at getting triple doubles. Harden is very good at, you know, creating this insane pinball offense around him. But there's just not that. Again, it's like it's maybe not even situational. It's just like they are not doing anything universal. They're doing a sort of highly specific, weird thing. And you can kind of take it or leave it. Whereas Kawhi, it's harder to argue with him as like a universal good. Yeah, and it's while Kawhi would not be what he is in other systems, there's so much of what he does that is transferable that you sit there and go, yeah, it it might not work as well, but it would work. I feel like he's, I mean, the one thing I think that just like continually impresses me about him is he does grow more and more every year in terms of freestanding talent you know i mean you, you he is going to reach the point at, at some point he's gonna he is going to effectively start to transcend the spurs i mean you already see like flashes of where you're like oh he doesn't actually need to play in the system whereas like early on it was very clear that um, i forgot what series it was it was like oh Kawhi Leonard cannot do this it was fuck what series was it i don't remember but it was one series i remember just simply watching was like whoever was playing just figured out that like Kawhi could not really create off the dribble up uh on the elbow or something and they just isolated him every single time. He didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. and it's like that doesn't happen anymore. I like, think that was in really, the. I think that was the Clippers series a couple of years ago. Yes, yeah, that was it. That was it. But yeah, it, he, his improvement. I mean, I I would talk about. Have, of course, I covered them their whole careers, but like how Steph Curry and Draymond Green improved so much over the course of their professional careers, and how that was impressive to me. But what Kawhi has done is totally different. Like, as he went from being a defense-only guy to being not only a good offensive player, but getting really damn close to great. And that just doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of anyone who's... They're definitely big men who suddenly have, like, weird scoring flourishes. But that's different. I mean, that's not that even a jury skill. You know, or, like, they, they get a mid-range shot or something. It doesn't happen anymore. But yeah, like, you know, it used to be, like, a guy would get a 15-footer, and all of a sudden he'd put up, like, 16 points a game. But that's totally different than... <laughs> yeah, well, like, remember how nuts how nuts people got about Michael Red and Michael Red. Oh, look, he developed a jump shot. It's like Kawhi developed an entire offensive game. It wasn't just that his, you know, now he's a reliable three point shooter. Now he's shooting, I think, ninety percent from the line. No, he has a dribble game. He can he can ISO better than he could before, and he's a better passer now than he was then too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's weird to like. It, it, I don't know why I'm like comparing him to Paul George in my head, but it's just funny how you, you now see like these glimmers of Kawhi where you can imagine him doing this for any team. I guess we said that already. 
Yeah, but it, I think about it with Kawhi, because early on there was this whole thing about, you know, like, oh, well, what would he be in another system? And, you know, I'm sure he would be he would be different. But then what I what I go the other direction sometimes is how good would X athletically talented but underskilled player be in the Spurs system? And Paul George is an interesting example of that. Like, I wonder, I'm not saying he would be better than Kawhi because he wouldn't be, but if you put Paul George day one in San Antonio's system, how how where would he be different and where would he be similar? I think his defensive game would probably be pretty similar, but his offense, you know, maybe he would have he would have a different mentality maybe because Paul sometimes he just likes he just likes having the ball in his hands in a different kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's really never. I mean, I'm trying to think if I'm wrong about this, but Popovich has never really favored like athletic wings. You know, like I I'm trying to think of. I mean, I'm trying to think of anyone who sort of fit that that mold who's been in any way. Well, I mean, you know, young, like young Stephen Jackson was a little bit in that, but not all the way. Young yeah, Steve, that's true. But young he, Stephen I mean, Jackson was, he also was also a very like, different he, thing. He was also kind of like um, like a secret weapon, I was. You know, like he wasn't popped in. You know, he was. He was. I feel like Popovich does this thing, like he where he'll just like have a guy that he brings in to do whatever it is they do in bursts, and they're not necessarily part of the system per se. He just like tolerates them for a certain amount of time each game. Mm-hmm. Um, John Simmons is that guy that's now. Kind of, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I mean, that's that's they're they're eerily similar in that. The, their whole thing is just fascinating. Also, and you you see just the players that have have gone through there, and I, I've been impressed with what Corey Joseph has been doing in Toronto, re, especially recently. Now that now that Kyle's been out, but yeah, I mean, a lot, there was early on there was those you know the fears about oh these guys aren't really transferring, but some of them are now, and I think it's also just that they're insanely good at ad- identifying talent. Well, and also there's also that that whole thing where the Spurs were kind of I mean they weren't the Warriors before the Warriors but they were certainly the team that took what the Suns were doing and turned it and they sort of made pace and space into like a albeit like a sort of I mean it was a very Spursian version of it but they did sort of anticipate or at least adapt to that the way the game is headed before everyone else did in some ways so I think there's you know there's that whole evolution of the Spurs from like a kind of retrograde team to a forward thinking team and I think that you know as the game has evolved and people want to like move the ball more and like create space and stuff like that. Like all of a sudden Spurs pedigree is actually extremely valuable. Yeah. And I, I think the other portion of that, which is a connection between the Spurs and the Warriors and to a degree Cleveland, though they're a little bit different is just having a critical mass of intelligent passers makes it easier to make the transition that they did because you can do that in a different way. And so that that's kind of the difference between what, those two teams in particular have done in a lot of the other teams is that they've combined shooting pace and space with just having almost everybody on the team know what to do with the ball the second it gets in their hands. Right. I mean, it's the whole notion of you manufacture offense by by passing and by knowing where people are going to want to be, you know, and, and that's maybe the whole, like back to the athletic wing thing. It's like traditionally that's not a player who is really thinking about you know, spots on the floor. You know, it's, it's about having the ball and creating which is sort of the antithesis of, of big picture, thinking like, what's the overall organism going to be doing? Mm-hmm. I wonder how Houston's offense would look if they had a few more... I mean, they're they're not bad in that way with the depth passers, but if they had a little bit more, I think it, it would help them. But I mean, their offense is still ridiculous anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like they've just chosen... Not chucking because it's not like they're breaking the shots off their right, but it's almost like D'Antoni realizes that he doesn't have that he can't only move the ball so much, so he's just like, let's get the best look we can as quickly as possible for whoever. I mean, it's like berserk in seven seconds or less, right? I mean, it's basically like 
three pointer at any cost from whoever might have the best chance of making it. There's almost like it's almost like you're you're cutting out the middleman and just gambling on on what seems like a, a decent shot. Yeah, it's the brute, it's the brute, it's, it's the concept. brute force version of the same concept. Right. I mean, because you're kind of like accepting, like, you, you know, beggars can't be choosers. You know, you can, you, you, they just can't wait around for the, I mean, because that's always like a thing I, I like about Golden State always. It's like, they're so patient. No one ever seems in a hurry to shoot, even though they move like lightning quick. It's like they're always, it's like the whole like 500 assists a game thing is almost entirely premised on no one is necessarily just going to like force anything. You're going to wait for like the perfect thing to sort of come into focus and then it's executed on. And I think like that's just not an option they have in Houston. Right. And that's largely attributable to Steve Kerr. I, I was somebody who was very critical of Mark Jackson with the idea that the Warriors had better offensive talent that they weren't utilizing, especially Curry because he was just special. And while Curry, Kerr did a, lot, a much better job of utilizing Curry, the other arguably more important part of what he did was he changed their expectations of what was a good shot. And that is what really opened it up because they were satisfied with these like 18 foot turnarounds and a lot of these other things. And when you have the passing and the shooting that they have, you can do better than that on almost every single possession. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's also funny too. It's like they, they manufacture highlights, which is a weird juxtaposition, but you know, they, they get these like incredibly creative things happening out of the floor, but it's, it's all, it's all so much of the flow of the game that it's almost like, it almost uh, it takes on a life of its own. You know, it's like someone who whoever is going to make the move is going to be making some a transcendent move, and not because they're not just because they're a transcendent player, but because they've got a system that's basically like going to set you up to do the most amazing thing possible. Right, and they all, to a man, pretty much, they really seem to relish that, which is another important element. It's it's something that I always drew that distinction with Kobe. That I always thought Kobe was a talented passer, but he wasn't always a willing passer. And you sometimes sometimes that's not a distinction that matters, but other times it is. And it's a big part of what makes the Warriors and the Spurs work on that end. Right, and I think I think especially with the Warriors, there's like there's like this overall. I mean, Spurs, you know, Spurs players are soldiers. You know, they're just like firmly committed to like this form of basketball and to the you know pursuit of this beauty through winning version of the game that's kind of you know that becomes like the self-perpetuating idea where during the warriors there's much more a sense of like we are all individuals who benefit tremendously from the system and we're it's a buy-in you know like the system is dependent on each of them being able to do the crazy shit they do but it's also they all know that as individual like that they are getting opportunities to flourish that they would not necessarily have in the same way on a different offense you know it's like they they they're you know they're all like phenomenal players who all very much trust the offense right and that's something that clay's talked about a couple different times he's a basketball nerd and just he appreciates what he is in this whole thing granted he also is is in some ways the anomaly that that proves the the merit of the system but also that was from what i can tell was a part of the the pitch to durant that i'm not sure he really got until he was in the room with those guys is that they just enjoy playing that way and yeah having kevin durant changes it but it didn't change the overall ethos, which is what drew them in. Right, and I think Durant also just has, you know, Durant also is just someone who could not be less like Westbrook in respect. But Durant sort of believes in orderly basketball. You know, like his own game has always been, you know, it's, it's never been sort of, there's never been like rough edges, it's never been anything unresolved. Like Durant is a pretty like seamless and not predictable, but it's like he doesn't do things that completely throw you for a loop in the same way that obviously Westbrook does, and that's the great dissonance between them. But also it's like why 
you put Durant in Golden State, and it's like he's very much in his comfort zone because the entire system is like humming, humming along in a way that really suits him. He's a basketball pragmatist, basically. You know, it's just I'm going to do what I can do to to help the offense and make it work. And I think we saw that also when he played without Westbrook at various moments, both when they staggered and also when when Russ was out at various moments in the past. And it was a part of what sold me on that idea in the first place was that Durant's game was more malleable, that there are certain players in the league who their presence, you know, makes that team that way. I actually was working theoretically on a piece for the athletic before the season started about how Rajon Rondo is one of those guys. Like Rajon Rondo makes teams when he's on the floor feel Rondo-y and Durant is one of the best players in the league who is not that way. Like, and, and that's not necessarily meant as, a, as criticism or praise. I mean, LeBron is that way. LeBron teams develop a personality and that's a great thing because LeBron is a monster, but Durant, was more malleable and that's what part of what drew me to the idea of this could really work and not only that but that it could actually happen yeah that makes total sense and i mean i think even you know if you had to like point to anyone who i don't even know who whose personality the warriors reflect i mean sort of structurally you know they're still premised on like on space in the floor but I guess that starts with Curry. I mean, more Curry last year, you know, like when Curry was like knocking down 35 foot threes, you know, like in transition, and then that really very much did feel like Steph's team. But I think now that things are sort of, you know, they're not really, it's not so Steph centric anymore. It it is sort of everyone's, not everyone's team. It's kind of no one's team. Like it's its own entity almost. And they all just worship at the altar sort of, I guess that's what I'm saying with Spurs worship at the altar. They don't worship at the altar. They're just like all like, very willing participants. Yeah, they're in line. If you want to say they're brainwashed, I think that wouldn't wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to, to use. And with the Warriors last year, I was actually thinking about this when I rewatched I rewatched Game Six of the Western Conference Finals, and then I rewatched at various moments parts of of other things for for some projects I'm working on. And last year, it, Curry's swagger was much more prevalent with the Warriors. You know, like that that when yeah. he would hit that moment, and he would either either with a shimmy or just something else, and the team really did kind of like puff up and bristle in those moments. And we're not seeing that as much this year. They did a little bit in that first game against the Clippers because they just hate the Clippers. And so they, they did it then. But really, those moments have been much more spread out and, and sporadic this year. Which is just weird because, you know, the whole kind of evolution and devolution, depending on who you ask, of Curry was that side of it very much came out and people became very much aware of it. And it did make him like, by the end of the year, I got far more polarizing figure than he'd been, you know, early on in the season. And yeah, I don't know how that, I mean, you know, that, that, that in its own way is as really unprecedented as Kawhi developing this like sublime offensive game for nothing. It's like, when has the player gotten to that point of like feeling themselves and like motivating the team through doing that to just kind of like falling back and retreating into their own head to some degree? Like, how does he just keep that to himself now? Right. And you th- the players even who did it more in the supernova fashion, like Iverson or somebody else, they always had that in them. It was just that it, it, it came in, in in the way and then it, it never really faded out. Their game just faded. And with Curry, we'll see if it comes back. There have been a few little flashes in January at various moments. But you're right that it hasn't been just there. You know, like it doesn't feel like it's boiling under the surface. It's just fundamentally different for the most part. I wonder if that means it's more Durant. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't even though I feel like I wrote about this at some point. I don't wholeheartedly believe in this construct, but it does feel like if we're, you know, there is something temperamentally that is very Durantian about that team. You know, just that everyone is like now being like 
very mild mannered and like not deferential, but it's like everyone sort of like selectively shows emotion. And again, like what's driving them doesn't seem to be like, even like Draymond doesn't have like the same kind of vocal presence or, or at least effect on the entire team he did last year. You know, there's like, there is that sort of sense of deep faith that what they're doing is just going to be great for all parties involved. It's like a very, like, it's not like a weird mercenary arrangement, but it's just like all of them. It's almost like they're rallying around the idea rather than actually sort of like all getting on the same page and like creating like this very emotional chemistry between them. I think there are two different factors in that that are feeding together. So the selectiveness is is a really interesting point and I think gets into the part that Durant has added. Like this year, their effort and intensity has waxed and waned a lot. And that was not true the last two years. They were, especially last year, they were just going full bore the whole time because they had a chip on their shoulder and everything else. And the other reason that changed, so Durant is a big part of it. And his defensive effort this year has been a, a good barometer for a lot of the, the components of the, the like the real pinnacles of this team. But the second part is something that the players will never really talk about publicly. But I see it just as somebody who's been around it for a while with them, which is how losing in the finals last year changed them. And last year, they got every accolade they could ever want in the regular season. And what they found was they didn't win the title. And, you know, I was there at the at the post, you know, the, the whatever they call it, the cool down press, press the availability the day after the game seven. And they all looked hollow. Like, you know, it, was, it took a lot out of them. And I think that what they what a lot of them thought about over the summer was, well, if we did everything in the regular season, we lost in the finals and we did that, then why are we killing ourselves over every second of every regular season game if that's not how mm-hmm. we're going to be defining this? And so I think that's been the other part as well, is that this happened all at the same time, was that they realized they were gunning too hard because there wasn't really a point. They'd already proven everything they needed to prove. And they added in somebody who already fit the mood that they were or, that they were cultivating themselves. Right, like it's a, it's a very it became very business like because it's just like we're going to do our thing and get to the finals and win and prove everyone wrong. But it's pretty much like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what this team does until they win the title. Right. You know, and, and that would have been the case. It would have been the case even if they haven't got even if they hadn't gotten Durant. I mean, the expectation is still there that you go seventy three and nine, you're supposed to win a title sooner rather than later. I mean, obviously, they want to be here before, but it's kind of like a weird version of... I mean, I guess it's no different than, uh, you know, LeBron. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the... You know, LeBron's minutes never end up being as limited as they're told they're going to be. And even... And, you know, although he somehow is always, you know, even better in the playoffs, it seems like, it's not... Especially this year, it doesn't seem like he's taking it easy. You know, I mean, he's the legit MVP candidate this year. But there is there is a way in which, like, the Warriors do seem to just be... I wouldn't say they're going through the motions, but they definitely are not pushing things as hard as they could... And maybe that's also why, like, the emotions are not there is because they're just trying to get back to the finals. And I think they're going to sort of hold back. And what you're saying makes total sense. It's like, why would they be out there? Like, they've sort of lost the right to have swagger, you know? Steph does any, say Steph started shimmying all the time. Like, it's like just the the, the sort of juxtaposition of the shimmy and blowing a 3-1 lead, which is, like, haunts them everywhere they go in, in any game. Even if they win the game, it's still like, oh, the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. You can always... That actually almost becomes, like, more salient when they do something well. It's like, oh, that was good, but you blew a 3-1 lead. You know, so the idea that someone, one of them would be, like, out there, like, puffing their chest out, it's like, yeah, well, what are you doing? You blew a 3-1 lead, you know? 
Yeah, I, I think that that's part of the equation as well. Is is that defi- you know defining the terms and that all of those things that were components of of the success last year, and then what became a failure. And and if you want to justify it, and I think they certainly can with with everything that happened, not only Curry's injury but Bogut, Iguodala, you know, a lot of those things doesn't really matter. You know, you go seventy three and nine, you don't win the title. You can throw all the excuses out you want in the world, but they you still didn't do it. And the way that I can tell that they're going through the motions a lot this year are the moments when they're not. So that first game against the Clippers, that first game, even though they ended up losing it against the Cavs, the second game against the Cavs, and there were a couple other ones. The I would say the first game actually against Oklahoma City, the one that was at Oracle, that was another one where they really they really cared in that first half and just ran them off the floor. Those moments right. have been more like what the 14, 15, and 15, 16 teams were like. And that makes me think that they can kind of turn it on again. But you don't usually see a team go from being that always-on team to flipping a switch. But especially considering they don't have the shack of this group. You know, like the reason the Lakers were, in my opinion, were a flip the switch team was because that's what Shaq was. And when your best player takes that personality, that isn't really the way this team is, but it kind of feels like they made a collective decision that, well, we might as well do it that way. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the other side of that is who better, who is better suited to flip the switch on and off than guys who are like consummate professionals. If you, you know, if you give Durant is like, I don't want to say a clinical player, but the way Durant plays is so unencumbered by, you know, emotion or circumstance. You know, he just goes out there and produces. It seems like it would be pretty easy given that he, it seems like he just, yeah, like you're saying, I think I'm agreeing with you, obviously, but it's like those guys have made a conscious choice to switch it off. Like Shaq was actually an on-off guy. Shaq was kind of at the mercy of his on-off switch. And thankfully it turned on to the playoffs every year because he wanted to win a title. But I, I think I think with Golden State, it seems like they've decided to to sort of drop it down a notch. But they're exactly the kind of team and exactly the kinds of players who could very easily just like turn it on, and they're not. You know, it's like when you start a car, like a nice car that has to be turned on in a week, and it's just humming like nothing happened. It could you know, be. I just I just yeah. don't see Durant. I don't see Durant getting sort of like rusty or out of sorts or because i mean that was always a thing with like the lakers you know they would have weird growing pains because you can't just one day wake up as a team and decide you're going to be good you know there would always be like not always but there would frequently be like a couple games where you notice they did not have it all together yet even if they decided they wanted to whereas i feel like the warriors are they're like sleepers I, th- I think all the people might be like almost underestimating how good well they could play if they actually decided they were all gonna like fire on all field. We can't know it at this point, but there is the possibility that this is just like the ultimate swagger confidence play, that they know they're that much better than everyone else and just have no need to prove it. It's it's like the, you know, the old the old Milton Burrow like pull out enough just enough to win. You know, they might be seeing it in that way of all of these guys, whether we're talking about the Warriors as a team, because they won a championship and won seventy three games separately, but the same group. And Durant individually, I mean, Durant has proven that he's one of the, if not the best players in the world. So they could just be doing it in that way of just like, we have it. We just don't need to do it right now. I wonder if like, I, I, that's interesting because I wonder like, are there conversations with Kerr if that's the case? I mean, he, I mean well, no, just like to the whole Popovich thing about playing possum, you know, I mean, that was a Spurs thing for a while. 
And I wonder if, I mean, I certainly think Kerr would be, I mean, I don't think Kerr's like masterminding something like that, but I certainly think Kerr would be amenable to being like, all right, let's save something for the postseason. Not in a, we don't have it together yet, but let's just, we're not going to give away everything quite yet. Because that's a total Popovich trick, right? It is. And also, remember how weird last year was for Kerr. I mean, he missed the first basically half of the season because of his back issue, and then it persisted after that. So they were in a very different place mentally, and with everything else, there's been some good reporting about it. But they just kept on winning. And so I think that he probably separately, but I'm sure they eventually talked about it together, internalized everything that happened in a, in, a, in a different way. And you still see the frustration in him when that happens. But there was a moment, I think it was in it was in late December, or early January, where he said, basically, we're not going to have it every second, every night, but we just need to not beat ourselves in those moments. And I just went, oh my God, he gets it. Like that basically, I mean, I think it's the former player in him. The idea that the team, especially a team that is as accomplished as they are, is going to have ups and downs. And I think you could you could say it in terms of truisms and just general truth. But I think when I when I heard him say it, I thought it was more specific than that. And it was the idea that he knew they weren't going to bring it every second of every night. But if they, you know, don't turn the ball over 15 times, if they only turn it over 10 times, they're still so good that they can win with their C game. Yeah, and they have they have nothing like you said. They really have nothing to gain by you know they already went seventy three and nine. There's nothing for them to accomplish in the regular season. And in some ways, you could argue it would be. I mean, obviously the Durant injury colors this, but it would have kind of been worse for them in terms of that hype and everything else. If let's say they had gotten close to seventy two, I mean they were seventy three, they wouldn't have had to necessarily get there, but. If they win 69-70 again, then you start to get all that pressure and everything else. If they're coming in at 65-66, that narrative is very, very different. And now with the Durant injury, that's not even really going to be there at all. I mean, they're still going to be probably the favorites, assuming he can be back in some form. But it's not the behemoth, the zealot, the inevitable, which did not particularly suit them well. And they did not have the year they won the title. Right. No, I mean, that, that's still, I mean, I, I was like one of the people who was like, this is going to be a weird anomalous title that we look back on and wonder, how did that team win that title that year? You know, like when you look at the title, there's like the teams that aren't dynasties that won titles here and there, you know, like the Sonics title or the Bullets title or whatever, where you're just like, I don't know, there must have, it must have been like a transitional year, you know, or it must have been like, and I think the Warriors, when they won the, their title, it seemed like, because no, I don't think anyone anticipated them making a leap after that. You know, it wasn't, there was no reason to presume that they would come out of the gate and be completely transformed. So I just assumed they would be like a weird blip and that, you know, that LeBron would go back to winning titles or something. Certainly fair. And considering how much of an improvement it was over the prior season with largely the same personnel, it was reasonable to believe that it was a blip. You know, it was reasonable to interpret it that way. And Steph Curry went from being, I think he was 11th in the MVP voting in 13-14 to first and then the next, so you're sitting there going, okay, this is this is the high watermark or, or functionally there for Curry. And then all of a sudden the next year, he blows that away and is the unanimous MVP. And it kind of parallels what happens with the team. And I mean, his individual stats were ridiculous. And so then they become this totally different entity and enterprise. And they didn't go through, they went through a different kind of evolution compared to some of the other teams that, that rose in that way. Like it wasn't, 
the Celtics with KG and, and Allen and all that, where they really did do it in one year and then just kind of kind of went back because they did have those growing pains as a team, but it felt like they skipped a step. And then instead of responding by going back and remaking that step, they won 73 games mm-hmm. and then lost. <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's almost like it's, a, it's almost in a weird way. Like the, the 73 game, 73 wins seem almost more flukish than the title. Right. And, you know, it was. I, 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 I don't know. It was like you said, they just kept winning, you know, they, they just, and then, yeah, part of it was, I think, obviously at some point, it's also weird. Like they, why did they have such a chip on their shoulder going into last year? Because like they just won the title. Was it because, because no one gave them respect for the title? Was it right. Because they, they played angry to start the year. Like when they had that, you know, they went out after every game they won to start the year, but like they were just steamrolling people. They had a, a chip on their shoulder because there was this narrative, which was actually more prevalent in mass sports media than in smaller sports media, more like what, what you and I have spent more of our time doing, where it was like they got lucky, everybody had injuries, Kyrie was hurt, Kevin Love was hurt, Mike Conley was hurt, Patrick Beverly was hurt, you know, basically every team's point guard and all that sort of stuff, and that it was it was fortunate, and I think that that really bothered them because they had the best record in the league, they never went to a game seven in the entire playoffs and they went, well, how is this not enough? And then they, they're like, okay, so they're do doing it this way. And then the other big thing that they had was just an immense amount of continuity. And so they, they had the drive and they had talent and they had continuity. And so they just started rolling people. And then once, once it got its own momentum, then it got really crazy. And once they got up, you know, 15 wins and then 20 wins, and I think it ended at 24 that's an absolutely insane thing to do, and really that propelled them. And then they had other 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 little pieces like Kerr. His only real driving force with that was that he wanted the number one overall seed. But they were able to use that as motivation all the way into April because the Spurs just didn't lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So so then they're sitting there, you know, early April and. They're pretty close, you know. They, I think they had they could only lose like two or three more games, and like, well, I mean, at that point, might as well do it. And then they ended up losing. They lost to the Wolves, and I think they lost another game that was vaguely surprising. And then it's like, okay, well, I guess now we need to run the table. And then they almost didn't, but then they did. And so I, I think it worked a little bit more organically than you would usually think because it's hard to get to seventy three wins and stay motivated. But the way that the Spurs really helped them out was by continuing that, and then the Warriors didn't even have to play them in the playoffs. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it was definitely interesting to compare it to, you know, to the Bulls. I'm trying to think how that season was like engineered or whatever. Well, that was I mean, just, my, that was just Michael Jordan today. being an insane person from everything that I've heard. Yeah, I mean, it also it's just like you know they were they were they knew they were on top of the world. They knew they had it all figured out, and it was just like what's a, you know it was a very you know talk about like a team taking on the personality of its like best player like that team became this like manifestation of like jordan's like will to dominate or whatever want to take a moment to tell you about a new sponsor harry's a sponsor i'm thrilled to have and some of you will be familiar with it they make incredibly high quality razors for half the price of the leading brand and i'm thrilled to have them on not only because i really like their products having used it now but i also because i love their story so it's two different guys jeff and andy that were mad at getting overcharged for razors so they did what 
many of us maybe think of doing, but none of us really do, which is buy a factory that had been making razors for 100 years. Uh, it's a German factory. Very, very cool thing to do. And by having the, the kind of the means of productions themselves, that allows them to take the savings and pass them on. It's a, a story that's now becoming more popular with the internet, but Harry's is a great example of it. And I had been familiar with their products, but had not used them before they were on the way to come on board. And so they were, they sent me a, a, a set of their stuff and I decided to really run it through the paces. I'm somebody who shaves frequently because my facial hair grows somewhat quickly, but does not grow very well, meaning it's patchy and all that stuff. So I have to shave frequently, otherwise it looks bad. So I decided, well, just got this and wanted to put it through the paces. So what I did is I let my facial hair grow out for a week. And it was the week, for those of you who watched the Twitter NBA show, was the week between the Twitter NBA show and now. And then put it through and ran the razor. And it, it did an amazing job. It was a close shave, very comfortable shave, no, no issues whatsoever. And I was incredibly impressed. And what I also love about Harry's and their deal with the show is that you can get their most popular trial set for free. All you have to pay for is a small shipping charge, and it comes with a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. And that's an amazing way to see if you like their products. I mean, all you have to pay is the shipping charge. It's not too much. And you go to harrys.com slash realgm to try it out. Again, it is the trial set. So you go to harrys.com slash realgm, and you can check out, see if you like it. Hopefully you do. I've been very impressed with it. And then you can get high quality razors for half the price of the leading brand. And it's an amazing way to do it. And so I'm somebody who, as I said, I have to shave somewhat frequently. One of the big benefits of Harry's being so much cheaper is that I generally wait too long to change my blades. And if you want to, you can kind of square the circle with Harry's by buying blades more frequently, but still saving money. And that's what I plan on doing with them as well. So again, it's harrys.com slash real GM. I was thinking about Friedrich a little bit with it because Steven Jackson, when he when he basically barked his way to an ex- a contract extension and then forced a trade before the extension kicked in, it was just a perfect encapsulation of like that time in the Warriors. It was like so I've been thinking about it a lot today and just being like, oh yeah, because that that year that he forced the trade was the first year he covered the team. Yeah, that was that was also such a bizarre team because I'm trying to think of another team that seemed as primed to self destruct as that team. I mean, even like the way, even the way they were in the playoffs, they were kind of teetering on the verge. Like, I think what made them so hard to match up against the, the Mavs was that like they just did not give. They were kind of like always on the verge of like self harm, and it's very, it's very like confusing. I think to play against the team where you're like these people are not. I mean, this is the Westbrook thing too. It's like this person is not fundamentally watching out for themselves in some very basic basketball ways. Like you know, it's like how it's like how in a war, you know, if the other side is willing to die you don't really know what to do. You know, like if you, if a team doesn't care about turning over the ball, it's like, well, that's our single best way to stop them on defense is to create a turnover. And it's like someone like Westbrook or those Warriors teams just didn't care if they turned the ball over, which it's just nothing else from a psychological standpoint that how do you get in someone's head as a defender if when they turn the ball over, it's like, whatever, who cares? Let's just keep playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about it in the context of, like, I had a couple friends in college and law school that I called escalators, like, for parties and stuff, where it's like, whenever they were there, things always got ratcheted up. And sometimes that would lead to amazing <laughs> nights, amazing stories, and other times it would just go in the wrong, wrong direction. And the people who, who fill that role basically always do that. Like, my friends who are who were like that then are still like that now. The Warriors, that the We Believe team, had way too many of those guys in one team. But it really worked out because they they ha- it happened to f- to fit against exactly the right team. 
it's in a weird way. You know the um, the Grizzly story where you know they took these guys who were kind of ne'er do wells, like Bumbus or like Zebo and Tony Allen, and they sort of let them set the tone and let them dictate the culture. And so all of a sudden, it's, so they didn't just rehabilitate them; it actually like turned guys who had, in their own way, like very strong character and could be very good leaders. It kind of empowered and emboldened them to take on that role, and you end up with a team that sort of highlighted their best qualities. That was kind of what the deal was with the We Believe team, but in the way you're talking about. I mean, basically, like, you took people like Jackson and, like, Barnes or whatever, and all of a sudden, these people who were kind of loons were now the new normal. You know, they were the people you were looking to for leadership and guidance. And I think in their case, like, the clock was ticking on that. So from the second, you know, it was kind of a deal with the devil. Like, from the second Stephen Jackson becomes, like, the heart and soul of your team, you, you know something is going to go horribly wrong at some point, or things are just going to like completely you know, fly off the rails because, you know, someone, someone who was probably, you know, we talked about earlier with him on the Spurs and almost like a wild card. Well, if you make that guy, the, not, I mean, not the focal point in any sort of strategic way necessarily, because I don't even think they had that much of a plan, but if you make him, if you give him a certain amount of authority, something that's going to bring down the whole team, because obviously it didn't bring them down. They were overachieved like crazy, but it's, it's going to, set a tone and set up an environment where eventually that very same energy is going to have like repercussions. And the other thing that ratcheted up for that team was that there was no like adult in the room that was being overrun. That is the entire team. You know, it was young guys who didn't really have a voice like Monte and Beedrins. And then the other guys were Harrington, Matt Barnes, Jackson, Baron Davis, Jay Rich. Well, Jay Rich maybe a little bit more, but he didn't care. He was he was ready to roll with it, and so they, they didn't. Ha- like, it was it just all reverberated off of each other and created this. And that's also why it wasn't surprising that they completely fell off a cliff in the series against the Jazz, which gets lost in the shuffle among Warriors fans because it was so ridiculous that they won the first series that nobody remembers how badly they got their asses kicked in the second, but because it didn't really matter, right. except for the Baron dunk on Kirilenko. Yes, I was going to say, I mean, that, 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 but that's so indicative of that team. It's so indicative of that team that that single thing, they walked away from it being like, yeah, we, we did it, we did it. No, you guys basically, in a series that you could have coming off in round one, one, you just sort of reverted back to normal. It's like, yeah, you got one amazing poster out of it, but where's the part of you that's like, like they were really unfazed by it almost. Yeah. It, I, it, I mean, part of it too, it's like they, they weren't, you know, they weren't expected to get past Dallas, obviously, but I think still it's like they had so much swagger that they couldn't stop having swagger. The thing that made them great, which is that they just refused to be humble, refused to accept sort of their standing in the league ultimately also made them look really silly when they had that moment where they had to sort of recalibrate and actually like compete in not some sort of bizarre world where they were just tasked with completely causing mayhem and wrecking a team that was completely poorly suited to dealing with that. You know, when they actually had to just like face up against a highly disciplined team with no, whose weaknesses were like, not that that's like glaring weaknesses, but it's like the Mavs had a very fixed identity that you could find. And especially because of Nelly, you could exploit things in the Jazz were much more of like a top-to-bottom solid team. You had to actually, like, you couldn't just sort of outwit the Jazz. You had to outplay them. Right, you know? Baron Dunk, because what I love about it uh, from a Warriors, like, fandom perspective is there is a group of people, because, like, one of the things they do with the Warriors is they have a season ticket holder of the game. And the season ticket holder of the game picks a, like, favorite moment in Warriors history or, you know, whatever. They can, they can use whatever rubric they want. The Baron Dunk gets picked all the time. 
and it was the only <laughs> highlight of that series. I think they won that game, but I think that was the only game they won in that series. And it's so beautifully representative is the idea of, you know, like how for Warriors fans that one year, that was the only time they made the playoffs from, I think it was from 94 to, to 20, I think that would be 2013. And yet it provided like a big scale moment and a small scale moment that was enough of a highlight for those exceedingly optimistic fans to like sustain them for 10 years. It's also weird too with that team. And I think everything you're saying is like completely spot on. They were like a weird combination of hubris and lack of ambition. You know, they thought they were the, but they also kind of ultimately didn't really care that much if they washed out of the playoffs or if the next season they fell apart. Because like, I think in their mind, like, yeah, like they, they proved something like, it's not clear what they proved, but I think, I mean, pretty like they confirmed to the world what they believed about themselves, which is where the belief part comes in, you know? And I think they, it was like, a, you know, these are, these are symbolic victories that maybe they're symbolic victories that are being kind of processed and projected out in a way that a team that knows they were overachieving would, uh, and maybe there's like some element of insecurity there, but then it's also like, they seemed like oddly faded by that series and you know, and by that dunk. It's almost like that was, they only needed to do enough to get to that place you're talking about. And then they almost, whether realizing their own limitations or whether just fundamentally like not caring enough on some level, like they just didn't see the need to extend any further than that. Right. And I hadn't thought about this until this conversation, but it's also remarkable considering there, there were a lot of talented guys on the team, whether they were players like Al Harrington that came in with a lot of hype and, you know, he had a, had a solid career. That series ended up being the kind of team high watermark, maybe not the individual one, for an immense amount of the players on that team. Not Steven Jackson, because he had the success with the Spurs, but pretty much everybody else. You know, Barron never really reached significant heights anywhere else. Jay Rich never really reached significant heights anywhere else. And like it is weird how you have this have that group and them winning an eight one series is their is like the highlight of their basketball career. And it's kind of, you know, again, it's like no one on that team was I mean, they all had like a bizarre star power to them and all of them, but more of them than they had any right to be. More of them than they more of them than should have had this weird star power. But if you look at that roster on paper, it, no one person jumps out as like the person who carried the team or the person you build a team around or the guy you go out of your way to like make a trade for no matter what. You know, it's it was they were a motley crew. And I mean, it's, in some ways, it's miraculous that any of those guys can say, I played a key role in one of the biggest upsets in playoff history. Because, you know, with the exception of maybe Baron, like what, what was anyone expecting of them anyway? Yeah, it's a, a fascinating team that I think about a lot. It's the same kind of it's it's a, it's such a different analog, but the the parallel for me with Run TMC, where Run TMC was more kind of beautiful basketball, but the other part of the legacy that they share is how short lived it was. Like Run TMC mm-hmm. was together for basically a year and a half, and you know, yeah, it has I, remember, this... I remember finding, I remember looking at that and just being floored. I mean, this was I remember when it was. It was obviously years ago, but when I actually went back, and, yeah, because even as a kid that was like a reference point in basketball time is a weird way of distorting itself in memory and stuff. But I, I definitely, when I think about the basketball of the era, like run TMC is one of the major touch points, but you're right. Like they barely existed. I could make a very credible argument that Mitch Richmond for Billy Owens is the reason I was not a Warriors fan growing up. 
because I was intrigued by the team that year. Basketball was always a, a like a side sport for me, partially because I was too small to play, also partially because you know it just wasn't really played in my household. It wasn't a sport. My dad watches hockey, lots of other things. I was intrigued by the Run TMC team, and and I was watching college around the same time. And then when they broke up and they you know stopped doing it, it's like oh they're, then it's just the Warriors being the Warriors, and I'll, I'll just do it that way. And then I didn't end up really falling for basketball until about 10 years later. Like it took that long to really get into it. And it just so happened that I then, after I got back into it, I got into law school up here and then I started covering the local team and that was the Warriors. And so then it all kind of came back together at that point. There was something resonant. I mean, you know, those teams, I mean, this is, I don't can't believe I'm falling back on an age old Bill Simmons construct because who am I? But he had a thing he wrote a million years ago about critical darlings in sports. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, it being Simmons, he had a completely like incorrect cultural analogy, which is he talked about like movies that never won Oscars but were great movies anyway, as if you know the Oscars are somehow the paragon of movie making excellence. But the whole thing was about teams that had this like cult appeal or this magnetism to them, despite the fact that. That had some sort of historic standing despite having never won a title. And I think the thing about teams like that is like they are magnetic. And, you know, even I think there's that quality to certain players and certain teams that it's almost like intuitive, right? I mean, it's like they're the things that draw you to the sport, the things that sort of resonate with you on a very basic level about like enjoying the sport and finding the sport compelling and wanting to like learn more about what's happening on the court. You know, and, and I think it's like that they sort of are the teams that like fuel your curiosity. I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, at this point, everyone's, like, hellishly professionalized and, like, someone like the Grizzlies also was, like, a, you know, whatever, Grizzlies are weird case because they also are, like, very rough and rugged and a lot of personality. But, you know, like, the, the whole, like, oh, teams are, like, amazing, you know, there's just, they're just, like, this grist for the basketball hive mind to make sense of. But I still think that, you know, at the end of the day, it goes back to the whole style notion. It's, like, there are just fundamentally certain teams and certain players that make you care more about basketball and make you kind of feel like you're still in love with the game, aside from kind of all the more official or like button down stuff that we do, you know, like talk about an MVP race. You know, it's it's like at the end of the day, I mean it's like James Hollis tweeted a thing a couple of weeks ago that was like, Who's an NBA player who's really good but you just don't care about them? And my half joke response was most of them, because at the end of the day, <laughs> there's there's only so many players in the league that can occupy that special place where they do just where they're just like radically compelling at all times. And it's obviously different players for different people. But I think Run TMC is one of those teams that was like that kind of for everyone who came into contact with them. Yeah. And while it wasn't really true in terms of the actual chronology of it, in my brain, I feel like even though it was they weren't still together at that point, NBA Jam might have actually helped it just because the Warriors were actually one of the most fun teams in NBA Jam. And even though Richmond had was gone at that point, I think NBA Jam came out in 93. I think it helped. It extended the life of Run TMC by a year? Yeah. Functionally speaking, yeah, because Mitch was traded in 91. But, I mean, the still the lineup was, was Hardaway and Mullen because they were still together. Hardaway hadn't gotten traded by that point. And, I don't know, I, I feel like those sorts of things actually do have some resonance. I think about that also with, I mean, granted, his name has been tarnished in many ways since then. But, like, Michael Vick. You know, I, I think Michael Vick's legacy and, and resonance was really expanded by video games. Yeah, I mean, he, he was... I mean, Vick is also one of those guys, too, where... I mean, it's not like a, you had... Yeah, it is kind of a you had to be there, you know, because I think basketball is ultimately... You know, all sports are, like, extremely experiential. And while I, especially when I was younger, could have rattled off so much stuff about, like, arcane baseball history, 
you know, like I had zero truly visceral understanding of like, you know, Bill Dickey or someone like that, even though I had this whole imagined thing in my head about what he played like and like everything you would like take for granted if you actually were alive at the same time as someone playing. But I think that's the thing though, is like someone like Vic, especially given everything that happened afterwards, it's going to be very hard to communicate to anyone who was not following sports in that moment, just what kind of presence Vic was. And I think that's exactly the quality I'm talking about. It's like you are strongly affected by these things when they're there. And then there's something like irreproducible about it that makes it, you know, it's, it's, it's experience. Like you can't, you can't sort of rationally conjure up or even like via YouTube highlights, you can't really convey what it's like to watch someone play in real time or watch them play when there's like something at stake. And I don't know. I mean, that's, I think why we care is because we get immersed in things like that and we have things that we care about in that way. And also the other reason why it's hard to convey is because a lot of times, and I'll tie this back to basketball with the seven seconds or less suns, where part of why it matters is because of what preceded it and what followed it. And so with Vic, it was that he was so different from uh, anything else. I mean, you had the comparisons to Randall Cunningham and so many other things with the Suns. Sure, there were the Westhead teams and Nelly's teams at various other moments, but the, the Suns felt distinct and felt different, and that helps the resonance as well. And that's something that you also lose by context, because if somebody got into basketball in the last five years, you have to convey that what you're seeing now wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the curse of being, you know, especially when I was younger, you know, like in high school and stuff, when I was like learning about music, I always had trouble sort of fully comprehending that. And it's it's a very weird cognitive bog to find yourself in. But I always was like, huh, Charlie Parker is playing all that stuff that everyone plays, but he thought of it. So it's not, it's just like, you're right. It's very, it's kind of a mind fuck to have to hear or see or watch something that has become commonplace and try and remember that it once wasn't commonplace and try and hear it as if you didn't already know every second of it in advance. Especially um, when and, it's become yeah, so sun- ubiquitous that you can't separate it. Right. And the, the sun, the suns too are also, you know, that was my team. Like that was, I want to say it's like, I mean, definitely the team that like started free Darko, you know? And I think I never would have thought that they would actually lead to anything, any sort of like systemic revolution in basketball. I mean, that, team to me just you know they were kind of like they felt way more joyously anarchic and there was so much talk about Dantoni as a kind of a non-coach you know like I mean granted like everyone was dumber about basketball then but certainly like didn't help things but you know there was there is in 04 or 05 like that team was not being thought about as like a rigorous team you know it was like freewheeling Steve Nash and all these like jumping guys and this crazy coach look and do whatever they want and, you know, he would say these cryptic things like, I want a team that's all six, eight guys who can handle the ball. And everyone was, just, you know, it, it, they just seemed, it was very hard in that moment to not think of them as, this, you know, as like, and not to keep bringing back Vic, but, you know, as a Vic or to go to basketball like an Iverson where they were just some sort of like abrupt break with the past. Because when you break with the past like that, it's hard to ever imagine the repercussions could be something like orderly and like transferable. I know there are times when in sports, when there's like some sort of clear ideological shift and a team clearly represents that. But I think what you're tapping into about the Suns is that there was no way to have foreseen the fact that they would end up that kind of team. Yeah, that's a great point. And it was also, I think, one of the requirements of making that work 
was having somebody like Popovich who was so open to taking the parts of the seven seconds or less sons that could be transferred without taking the whole thing. Mm -hmm. From there, you know, you, you see it go in a couple different directions, but yeah, I mean the, the, and also I I think that it came around at the right time when it was in the er the earlier days of people. And of course, Popovich was at the forefront of this of, you know, like being open to trying new ideas to see if it, to see if it works and see if it makes it better. And there, there have always been coaches like that. That's part of what makes basketball so special is that it's dotted in the history as opposed to just being like more of a modern thing. Like you could think about the way that analytics are used in baseball, but it was more of an, it was more of an aberration than I think that it is now. And so, but it also the biggest thing that helped it was that it it ended up working for the Spurs in that other form. And so then that led to more, I think that led to more imitators than the Suns' success. Oh, absolutely. And I think, I, I think I, I wrote a thing for victory at one point about sort of the D'Antoni's reputation over the years. And the thing I think it's interesting about Houston is yes, there is a version of the Sun story where D'Antoni is kind of this, I don't want to say like tragically flawed, but just this like not wholly ship-shaped figure in the evolution of basketball. And it's only through Popovich's vision that what he was doing gets transmuted into a thing that could actually win championships. And I think what just, what's cool about D'Antoni in Houston is you, it's kind of a reminder that he actually, he was not just sort of this laissez-faire madman. He had a plan. And as free-flowing as that team was, you know, there were principles there. And when you see in Houston is like, it's sort of like this weird D'Antoni filtered through D'Antoni's influence on basketball. You know, it's like you're seeing a team that reflects what was that, you know, just by virtue of participating in the present day NBA, forming to a lot of the things that Popovich has helped popularize, but it's the guy who ultimately was responsible for that stuff getting in the first place and doing it. So it's, it's almost like rediscovering the weirdness and the wonderment in the basketball that he that had the weirdness and wonderment kind of taken out of it to some degree and became kind of the lingua franca of present-day basketball. And he's going back into that now and kind of making it his own again, which is, you know, a nice little closed circle into his career. That's a great point. And I think that it also, the those Suns teams had the problem that you, you see a lot in sports and actually probably more in basketball than almost anywhere else, where larger traits get imputed based on on large things. I mean, there's the old idea that stereotypes exist because they help, you know, the idea that, you know, that, that the reason it happens is to try to narrow the world to try to better understand it. And they're flawed because that's the whole kind of the idea. And so with D'Antoni, it was the idea that since the players, you know, the players had more control, they were, they had all the stuff that, that there weren't those ideas. And so that became a part of the legacy unfairly. And I, a part of how I've seen it this time is not only the reminder about, about D'Antoni in that way, but also a referendum that a part of it that maybe we gave Popovich credit for unfairly was the idea that that D'Antoni empowered the right guys and knew he was doing that when he did it. Oh, absolutely. Popovich, ultimately, he's a guy who likes systems. And D'Antoni's notion of systems has always been looser because, yeah, like he believes in empowering players or great Popovich does. And I think that, um, you know, to go back to the Warriors, like the Warriors are... It's weird. I mean, it's, 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 they have, they, players are empowered in a very quiet way. You know, it's like the play. It's almost like it's almost like a um, it's almost like a reciprocal relationship. I think as we were talking about earlier about kind of them all buying in or them all realizing that like being a part of that team is actually great for them as individuals. I think that's sort of like I hate when people say this, but it's like if you do the dialectic, you know, you have Antonio, then you have like 
Covenant to take on Dantoni, and then you get the Warriors, which are kind of like the combination of the the sort of like player empowerment of Dantoni versus the system empowerment of Popovich, and you get this weird interplay between the two where you have individuals who are very strong players and very strong personalities in their own way, but they're sort of like consenting to like leverage what they can do, not to the greater good necessarily, I mean, to the greater value if you want in basketball games, but it's also like their sense of individualism is, is, is enhanced by that system. Like, it's like the thing I always think about, I mean, it's even too, it's like you get the same reciprocal relationship with the way the Warriors are structured, right? It's like, Steph is a system player, but he's dictating the system, you know? And I think, you know, Draymond too. It's like, these are players who, who are, who are the, the ultimate environment for them to thrive is being created there. And it's, it's as dependent on them as it is on, on, you know, Kerr's imagination. It's Kerr, it's Kerr utilizing them in a way that creates something that has the illusion of being kind of an independent structure, but really it's completely contingent on, on them as individuals. That is exactly also why it would be incredibly hard to replicate that with inferior talent. We'll, we'll have to see yeah. how, the, how teams try to do that, but by and large, the passing and the shooting that the Warriors have, not to mention the defense when they actually care, is... All, all of those component pieces, constituent elements, are required, and losing any one of them makes the whole thing fall apart. Yeah, and, you know, it's the opposite of the Spurs, right? I mean, the Spurs never fall apart. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, that's what also makes the addition of Durant so weird, right? It's that, like, you have a team that was irreproducible, and you've added another layer of that. But somehow it's still just a more fully realized version of the Warriors and how they play basketball, even though if you step back, it's like, good luck what if you look at your, your template and your template requires Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, and Clay Thompson. Like that's not a template. You know, that's that's an existing that's a form of that's a way of ordering those those very, very particular, very, very high level talents. But it's not anything that any despite the fact that it is like a very smart orderly world it's not one that has any sort of like i mean it i don't know you're right i mean it's like does it have universal validity i mean that's sort of what we're continuing in the process of finding out it's like and it, it's a it's an exercise it's an exercise in translation it's an exercise in almost like you like other teams you know at every level of basketball have to sort of figure out in the same way that Popovich had to look at D'Antoni and see what he could take and win with. It's like other teams have to look to the Warriors and see what can we actually take from this that's going to be, you know, what can we salvage, for lack of a better word. Because it, the second you start to think of that team as completely a function of the individuals on the team, you know, I could see how someone could just be, like, driven to despondency and say, well, what do I have to learn from that team? I don't have Steph Curry. You know, it's like, well, no, there's something there. You just have to be smart and figure out what it is. Right, and it is a challenge because... You, they're, they're kind of all these different parts of what make the Warriors succeed. And the, and the players are certainly an element of it. And if you gave that kind of system and that kind of authority to inferior players, it's not going to work. But at the same point, some of the broad mentality elements that, that Kerr imputed on the Warriors, who were basically the same team that Mark Jackson had, and the idea of working for better shots, ball movement and player movement, and demanding more expectations from your guys like those are components that coaches can really work from and I've talked about this in in various capacities before but part of what makes the Warriors succeed is that there's this base level of skill with almost all of their players JaVale McGee is an exception there are a few others that would be great for youth development to replicate 
Going to take another quick break from the conversation to tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches is a, it's a great story and one that I think a lot of people can connect with because it was started by two guys that were in college and really liked high-end accessories, high-end clothing, I'm sure too, and didn't have the money to buy it because at that time, as you know, as is still the case actually outside of outside of their world, you can pay a lot of money if you want to get a, a watch or anything else that really looks nice. And so their idea was that there was a way to produce high quality products without the price. And so one of the things they looked into was where that price is coming from. And so by taking out retail markup, by removing steps in the chain, they're able to really streamline the process and streamlining the process is able to make significant savings and then pass those savings on to people who buy their products. I have a movement watch, rose gold, brown leather, absolutely beautiful timepiece, get complimented on it all the time when I wear it. And what makes movement watches great is that they they look really, really good. There are lots of them in a variety of choices and they're priced starting at just $95. So they, they look like a million bucks. They cost substantially less than that. And if you go to them through listening to this podcast, you get 15% off, including free shipping and free returns. So what you do is you go to movementwatches.com, which is mvmtwatches.com slash real GM. It tells them you came from us and they will give you 15% off your first order plus free shipping plus free returns. Lots of different styles. I can advocate for the one that I have, but everybody has their own preferences with watches. It is one of those things where that happens. So just go to mvmtwatches.com slash real GM. You get that 15% discount. Tell them you came from us. Find a beautiful timepiece, buy it and enjoy it for a long time because they are absolutely amazing pieces. Now back to the conversation. You know, the I, I've talked about this. I did a podcast with Adi Joseph, who was my editor at the Sporting News a little while back, and I think it was about a year ago. And I kind of threw out the idea of why don't we just train all in the U.S.? Why don't we just train all of our guys as guards? Because coaches actually know how to train that way. And then eventually, like when guys get big enough and get get old enough, then we can have big men coaches to just teach them how to do that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that the whole thing, you know, at the peak of Steph Mania, it was, oh, kids don't want to dunk anymore, they want to shoot three. You know, kids, the kids in the gym now are, are you know, they're, they're out there, like, practicing their long threes every day because everyone wants to be Steph Curry. You know, I'm like, are you ever going to shoot at the percentage from the range that Curry does? No, but an approximation of that could still be valuable. And I, 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 think, I, think, I think a team that has an orderly structure to it and has a logic to it is always going to have those sort of lessons in it. I think individual players, especially individual players can very easily have none of that kind of wisdom to them. You know, I mean, this is like the whole, we were talking before about like athletic wings, right? It's like, what does someone actually learn from Paul George? I don't know. <laughs> if you're like trying to figure, figure, crack the riddle of basketball and you watch the Warriors, even if you know you're going to always be at a deficit when it comes to trying to replicate it, you can still say there is something here that makes it work sense. It w- makes sense and works. Even even if I don't have the pieces to do it, like what's the nature of the connections between them? You know, what what are the relationships there? Like how do I understand those dynamics? Because the dynamics are not a function. The dynamics obviously are a function of the individuals, but the, those dynamics are things you can understand. You can, you can imagine other things existing in relation to each other in those ways, even if they're not the same thing. Does that make sense? It does. And it also ties in with that idea of how certain star players don't really know how to coach because they can't figure out which parts of what they do are innate and which parts can be taught. 
Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting. I don't know if LeBron wants to do it. I think he's somebody who might be able to, to square that circle if he wants to, but I don't think he does. I don't think he wants to coach. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing about LeBron and coaching is, did you listen to the episode of the so-called Open Run, Uninterrupted is his company thing? But anyway, did you listen to that interview where he basically, it was like the most, not, not I mean, LeBron does not really have a candor problem anymore, but it was definitely sort of like, what I love about Open Run is like players are just so ridiculously relaxed which ends up paradoxically to them being smarter about basketball in public than you usually hear them be because they're just so at ease and they're just talking about basketball the way players talk to each other about basketball. And LeBron, you know, he talks a lot in the interview about how much work he does to kind of like, you know, empower his teammates and like think like his teammates and understand like their game in a way that's going to help him like interact with them on the court. And it's like he is so much already... I mean, the usual coach on the floor trope is point guard or whatever, but I think, and obviously LeBron is a playmaker. I think he's probably the best passer in the league. But when you start to hear LeBron saying stuff like this, you realize how much his sort of basketball IQ necessarily depends and necessarily encompasses a certain amount of things that we would associate more with coaches. You know, about like that, all that stuff about seeing the whole picture, understanding how everyone works, like thinking about how to get everyone you know, feeling a part of the team. You know, those are not things that every superstar takes upon themselves. You know, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, like Jordan never did that. Jordan did the opposite of that. Jordan just kind of like went out there and like, you know, if anything, like part of what Phil's job was, was to sort of clean up after Jordan and like make the team feel like, like it wasn't just the Jordan show and it wasn't just like at the whim of his personality. Yeah, they are very different in that way. And Kobe went straight after the Jordan model for a bunch of different reasons. And what LeBron has tried to do is a lot more work it's it's incredibly hard to do i think lebron got that from magic which is something that that was makes a lot of sense to me i i just when i watch lebron i always thought he was more like magic than like michael and i think that's part of the reason why i i latched onto him really early in his you know when he was in high school and i i see a lot i don't know if you do but i see a lot of that as a commonality between the two of them yeah, I, I think I think there's also you know the, I think the interesting thing about Magic is like you never think of Magic as like a consummate X's and O's point guard just because the way he presided over that team. I mean, you know, again, different era of basketball, not nearly as like wide open and weird as kind of what we've been talking about with today or with kind of the lineage from the Suns, you know, on through the Spurs, on the Warriors, whatever. But um, you know, Showtime was Showtime was for its time, very driven by individual styles. It was very much sort of like the way they played was not systematized, you know, so rigorously in the same way that other teams were then. I mean, like, and Magic had to have a particular kind of genius to actually, like, you know, make that team go. And, you know, it's it's not, you know, it, it, it is something like, I mean, you know, this is to take nothing away from Chris Paul, who I think is like a deity of basketball. But the way Chris Paul thinks of running a team versus the way LeBron thinks of running a team are, are very different. And I think Magic and the kind of you know the kind of team Magic you know ran was very different than like than a Chris Paul team would be or was eventually. You know, it's it's just like it's almost like players that have this like extremely like it's this very like organic understanding of how to work a team for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, and actually saying like. And not I'm going to get my hands dirty in the sense that you're actually like causing problems or creating tension. It's more just like knowing just how just how much attention to detail you have to pay to make something that is not wholly regimented still run as smoothly as something that's regimented. 
to tie it all back, I, I think that Steph Curry ends up not really going in either of those camps. I think he's just kind of a different thing where he is a part of building the culture and he tries to be intuitive in terms of getting his players to succeed, but he isn't that domineering player that both Chris and LeBron are in their own ways. And I, I think, too, I mean, this is a kind of outrageous claim to make, and I'm probably going to regret it as soon as I say it, but I would say in general that the Curry crop of point guards are all kind of like that. You know, I mean, what what guy, you know, whether in the like LeBron, LeBron magic mode or in like the more uh, doctrinaire like Chris Paul mode, who among the younger point guards would you ever say is actually that kind of strong generative leader that the entire team is taking its cues from in a super explicit way? You look at someone like Lillard, you know, or like even like Wall, it's like they don't lead by example, but they're just not. It's kind of partly just being a scoring point guard. You are not wholly preoccupied with trying to make the engine go. You going is a big part of the engine. I mean, it's like, I look at, like you know, at Oklahoma City now, it's like it is inconceivable that you would see a, a game where Westbrook just like ran an orderly offense in the half court every time down the floor because that team would be terrible if they did that. You know, it, it, he has to go for his a significant amount of the time. And I think you, I mean, just to look at them, they're sort of in miniature and in a very middling way, um, kind of, you know, are still reflective of where we are NBA wise, which is like, there is, there is a system that not, not there's a system there in some sort of like we're executing way, but like there is like a set of relationships in place and a set of kinds of things that will happen on a basketball court. And one of those things is Russell Westbrook playing like a madman. But then another key part of that is Westbrook dumping the ball off to Adams, you know, or like Cantor sliding in. Like there, there's like all these possibilities and it's less about sort of grabbing the bull by the horns and deciding what to do and more about sort of like waiting for the right thing to come into focus and doing it, which is what we're saying about the Warriors. You know, the Warriors are sort of the most highly possible, highly evolved version of that. But even, even the Thunder who have this guy, you know, best player, who's kind of like a ragtag mess in a lot of ways, they still operate on that same premise. And this is an absurd thing to say about a Westbrook team, but like you kind of let the game come to you. Uh, I mean, Westbrook doesn't play that way as an individual, but like, if you look at the way he plays with his teammates, like it's very unforced. And I'm always like astounded when I watch Westbrook this year by how readily he makes intelligible things happen when he wants to. There is also the, the parallel between, Westbrook and Curry, that they both have the interest and aptitude for understanding those elements about their teammates without having that basically drive the entire train. Like, it's not like LeBron where he takes all that input and he tries to make it into like the LeBronization of everything else. Like, with Curry and Westbrook, it's more like we're going to play our games, but that information makes us better at our jobs. And I, th- I see a difference between those two. And I think it's also in terms of how they want to, m- how they do less molding of their teammates, from what I can tell, than what LeBron and what Chris Paul do. Yeah, I mean, the more we talk about this, LeBron does increasingly seem like a weird throwback. He you is. Know? He totally is. Because I'm, I, I'm, I, I can't, I can't, I'm just having real trouble thinking, I mean, again, just like thinking of like the current crop of point guards. Like, I'm trying to think who is that guy who is conceives himself as like the central organizing principle as opposed to like you're saying a guy that just plays his game in a way that's that's sort of conscientious for lack of a better way of putting it yeah i mean i don't know maybe maybe i think john wall wall would want to be that guy but he just isn't all the way 
It's also, I think, because he's he's a, a little bit quieter of a person, and he's not as dominant, as overtly dominant as LeBron and Chris Paul are, just in terms of, like, it's a lot easier to, to do what they're asking because they're LeBron and Chris Paul are two of the best players of all time. It's another part right. of this whole equation, and they're ball dominant, and they're unusually skilled for everything else. But yeah, I, I think that it is it is interesting, and it will also be fascinating to see how some of these other, while Chris Paul is of course a smaller guard, some of these other bigger ball dominant guys, how they fit in, because a lot of times there aren't that many of them, and those players end up filling very like filling very different niches just by virtue of what they are. And so like what will Giannis's leadership role be as this, you know, six foot ten, six foot eleven guy with stretch armstrong arms? And Harden's the same thing. You know, I, I get frustrated that that people call my my own my whole thing about Harden being a point guard when he doesn't defend point guards. I'm not going to get into that now. But he no matter what, he's a bigger primary ball handler than almost anybody. And so how all those fit together will be fun because we haven't seen that many of those guys in history. I mean, Oscar did it and there are a few others, but there aren't that many. And a lot of them have a very big handprint on their teams and in some ways on league history. Yeah, I mean, and I think Giannis is also interesting too because like Giannis almost in playing point guard and being the primary ball handler, he still does it in a way that almost subverts the idea that he was the primary ball handler. Does that make any sense? It does. Um, like he's a very he's a very decentral. I mean, he's key in some ways, like the ultimate. I mean, the, if you want to like talk about a linear evolution of of point guard responsibility, like Giannis is in some ways like this weird like end of history guy where he's almost unrecognizable as a classic point guard. The ways in which he's responsible for that offense and the ways in which like he's the focal point of it and also sort of like the custodian of it are just not they're sort of turned inside out, right? I mean, you can't, you don't watch him play and think like there's a guy who's, um, who's running an offense. You just, if he's a guy playing his game and he's sort of like, again, towards your point about Curry and Westbrook, Giannis just sort of, and probably in some ways to a greater degree than those guys, because his, his scoring abilities are a little more, um, they're not as like, I, 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 I mean, I mean, Giannis is one of these players where he's so amazing at certain things that compensates for the fact that he can't do other things as well. But I think like that's partly too. It's like why he ends up like being like like we were talking about earlier. Like he is such a willing teammate. You begin to understand just how little traditional point guard authority is going to matter going forward, because he's someone who is not Westbrook. Like if you gave the ball to Giannis like 300 times a game and told him to win the game single-handedly, it's unclear if he actually could. But at the same time, he's serving as the focal point in a way that diffuses the focus. You know, it's almost like an anti-point guard thing. God, I'm not making any sense, am I? No, I actually get it. I I get it. And what makes Giannis why I love that circumstance so much is that the ways that he's subverting it are also under the guise of one of the more traditional famous point guards of the generation before him and Jason Kidd. Like, it, it does kind of make sense to have Kid as the person who can isolate out certain parts of that position and their resp- that role and their responsibilities and impute that onto somebody who is so physically different from himself. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. We can't come back to do Simbotis, but it's like that distillation we're talking about Popovich having done with D'Antoni, it's almost like Kid is doing that with traditional point guarddom. You know, like he's saying, like, what are the things that I absolutely need to harvest from this and need to have 
Giannis taking responsibility for such that my team still hangs together? Like, how can, how can I scramble or, like, reimagine the point guard position so it works with this guy I've got? I mean, and, and not not to like this. This was always sort of the whole thing about like positional revolutions, and that whole thing was always about looking at a player and letting the player dictate their own role, as opposed to some sort of top-down imposition of what a player at a position was supposed to do. And Giannis is so much that, so much like you have this completely anomalous, once in a zillion years type of player that no one knows what to make of, and you really couldn't put Giannis in a traditional role if you wanted to. So it becomes less about making him fit a category and more about how can you like bend and mold the category to accommodate him. And also too, like what what category you even want to try and put him in. You know, it's like he you, it makes the most sense for him to be the quote unquote point guard, but what he does to that category makes it in some cases unrecognizable. Then again, though, like you, you know, you wouldn't try and play him at center. There is no version of the center, which is actually a dumb thing to talk about because center is so optional now. But you know, or like power for it. It's like you wouldn't want Giannis to just be like a you know a Duncan with the offense flowing through him. Like that would that would not fully capitalize on his ability. We'll be back to the conversation shortly, but I want to tell you a little bit about SeatGeek, the place that I personally use to buy and sell tickets to events, concerts, and really whatever else in that field tickles your fancy. Theater's another great one. And I use SeatGeek for a couple of different reasons and All of them are valid. They all run together. And one of the big ones is that they are an aggregator. So instead of going around looking at lots of different ticket sites and comparing prices and wondering how they fit together, you know, with fees and everything else, you can look at SeatGeek. You get it all in one place. And that makes it a lot easier to take the time to and also to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. And the other big part of that is that they have an amazing deal score. And so deal score is a way that they use to combine both ticket price and ticket quality. And so it is a great calibrator of what the best things that are listed, because if you're looking at a game, whatever NBA team you're looking for, whatever concert, there are going to be a lot of listings, hopefully for you as a buyer. And in that case, everything is different. You know, it's the quality of the seed, it's the quality of the price, you know, everything else that goes into play. And so SeatGeek does a really impressive job as somebody who used to do that to make a living. They do a really impressive job of figuring out what the best things are in that field. So instead of having to take the time to go through it, and I'm I'm sure you'll filter through it a little bit as well, of course you should, that they do an amazing job. And so you can sit there and say, okay, maybe I'm looking at these three and then they can't say buy these because it depends on your price range, depends on your priority, but they can narrow the field to the ones that are the most logical for you. And that's an incredibly valuable thing, not only in terms of saving money, but also saving time. And the best way to check out SeatGeek is you can use their mobile app. And so you just download the free mobile app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and you go to the settings tab and you enter the promo code RealGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, the name of the site that has employed me, the name of this radio show is Real GM Radio. So you just put in Real GM, and that does two things. One, it tells them that you came from us, which is great. And two, it gives you a $20 rebate on your first purchase. So you buy whatever it is you're going to, and you get just get $20 back. So you tell them you came from us, you get $20 for free, and you use the same app that I use when I go to stuff all the time. I use I use it very frequently when I'm not lucky enough to get credentialed, which I certainly am sometimes. So definitely check it out. Free SeatGeek app, Real GM promo code. Well, and the lesson, hopefully, that will come from Giannis and a couple of these other guys is 
potentially a decentralization for certain teams in certain situations of some of these roles and understanding of trying to maximize what a player can do. And for me, a good example of that is Carl Anthony Towns. It's like, yeah, maybe you don't want Carl Anthony Towns dribbling the ball up every time. You don't want him initiating the offense, but maybe you want him doing that sometimes. And he's so dynamite with Mm -hmm. the ball in his hands. So trying these things out and basically saying, you know, we'll split it up a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it works that I, I'm not saying Thibodeau is going to be the guy to unlock all of that with, with towns, but the destigmatization of that sort of approach could have some really far reaching effects because when I've really enjoyed the last couple of years, I've gotten more into watching not only college, college has always been kind of like an ancillary thing for me, but through being able to cover the Hoop Summit, cover Adidas Nations and things like that, is there are a lot of really talented, versatile guys of various sizes that are in the 16 to 18 age range. And if we can reach a point where can can cultivate some of that, like Anthony Davis, like a lot of these other guys, the league is all the better for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like Towns, you know, th- there's also this weird thing with, I've actually been, uh, it's a piece that I started to write and then I shelved it and I ended up writing a long thing about Embiid that I don't want to say it like made this piece unnecessary, but it definitely started to feel like a little redundant. But I was thinking a lot about, about kind of this, you know, all these like center seven footers. I mean, all these basically like Embiid, Towns, Cousins to some degree, Porzingis, where unapologetic, there's that whole thing where Embiid in typical Embiid fashion, do you remember this? Like he was, saying why they should put the center position back on the all-star ballot, which to me was like incredibly symbolic because he's a player who has never, ever, despite the fact that he could potentially, you know, be playing some weird, weird non-traditional position. Like he has never shied away from playing center, you know, and all those guys I just listed off, like they are all proud centers. And at a time when, at a time when, when centers are very much like out of vogue and, you know, and in the past, there have been, like, players, Duncan didn't want to play center. I mean, Garnett wouldn't admit he was seven feet tall. I mean, there's been, like, historically, like, on the part of skilled big men, an aversion to being identified as big men. And I think what's interesting about, like, the guys I'm talking about is, like, they have no problem with that. And it's funny that as the league supposedly is moving very much away from that, I mean, never mind, like, how players want to be, like, viewed or understood or thought about, just, like, the league as a whole seems less interested than ever than building on centers, you have these guys who are updating that position in a way that kind of demands that we be relevant. And I think they really, you know, God, like talk about, I mean, you know, it's like watching the Pelicans today. It's like people don't really, and this goes back to like the Thibodeau thing. It's like people don't really know what to do with someone that straddles the sort of past and present of basketball like that. You know, there's, there's no, there, the one of the reasons, I mean, Gentry's not the guy to do it, but there's like, there is no good playbook for how you have Davis and uh, cousins on the same team for the simple fact that like, there have not been players like this before, much less two of them on the same team. And, you know, like big men, this, these kind of big men are just, they are like this weird, you know, it's like a, they're like an alien life form. You know, basketball just doesn't quite know what to make of them because it's very tempting to just turn them into seven footers who play like seven footers always have. But at the same time, the other extreme, other example of possibility seems to be to like turn them as like weird post dirt, post garnet, like kind of Swiss army knife like guys. And the truth is like, no, like they have a very clear valence. Like they are seven footers plus all these other things. And you have to take them. You've got to sort of be willing to embrace them as that and understand that you need a combination of sort of like old school basketball know-how and kind of a more 
contemporary understanding of the game to actually make use of them. I mean, that's the thing. That's, that's, that is why, I, I mean, the humor of the, the Cousins trade to me is that Gentry didn't know what to do with Davis. Davis has never been correctly used or even, you know, used in a way that seems to, like, take full advantage of what he can do. And then you bring in Cousins, and so you have a guy who doesn't know how to coach one sort of futuristic big man, though I would argue that Davis... The, the, Davis, I think... Is a very is a different player kind of player. I don't. I mean, he's you know he doesn't really have range on his game. Uh, he's not a good ball handler. You know, D- Davis is obviously there's the whole thing about oh, he used to be a guard, but I think I like, compare him to Cousins. Even. I mean, Cousins is such a more well-rounded player. But um, you know, it's like they couldn't he couldn't figure out what to do with Davis. All of a sudden now he's Davis and Cousins, and I don't know who exactly. It's going to be interesting to see exactly what coach does figure out how to build around a big man who is more than a big man but is still a big man. This combination of guys is also fun because they could end up, and this is where I feel the league is going, is that they become the exceptions that prove the rule. And so that centers are outmoded and outdated. I mean, obviously, I love their their defensive role when you can when you can use it well without being exploited, especially the ones who are more versatile. Like you could think about Draymond Green kind of as the archetype here. He's a little bit smaller, but the same kind of idea. But the reason that teams are going to go small at center and move move to other kind of systems is because they can't find a Towns, an Embiid, a Porzingis. And I don't think that there will ever be, realistically, at least in the near term, more than somewhere between 5 and 15 of those guys. So the one of the big questions going around the league is going to be, first of all, can any of those teams build around those guys in a way that makes sense? And second of all, which of them, if any, and it probably would be a couple, become so good that they force other teams to at least partially succumb to their will. So Joel Embiid is talented defensively, and I think he's going to develop a good offensive game. And if he, and and maybe uh, Jokic is another guy that could fit in this, they could actually benefit yeah, yeah. a lot. I, I always forget Jokic. I always forget Jokic, and invariably when I make some statement about those other guys, there's two people on Twitter who will pop up and be like, "What about Jokic?" Yeah. yeah, but but so correctly. But so I'm sorry, both, guys. Like, but both Joel and Nicola do an amazing thing against smaller guys. And so what? What this whole kind of idea that I've been working at gets at is what happens if it's half giants and half non-giants. Can those players take enough of an advantage? And they're going to have to move quickly because, you know, the doubles are going to come and everything like that. Can they punish opponents quickly enough and devastatingly enough that teams are going to have to, other teams are going to have to reinvest, even if it's spot, like a spot guy, in having somebody on their roster who can handle that? And then if it's Joel Embiid, somebody who can be brewed on the inside and play outside, then can they exploit it in a different way? And those players will always have value in the league, just like LeBron is is the answer to a million different questions at once. And I mean, none of these guys are going to be LeBron in terms of overall impact. Like that's unreasonable to expect to me. LeBron is the second best player of all time. But the closer any of them come, the more interesting these concepts of team building and defending these guys get. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's like, I mean, well, Hackershack is the extreme version of this, obviously, sure. but just the fact that, like, teams had to carry as many seven as possible because people had to defend Shaq is, was itself an indication of what an enormous presence he was in basketball. And I think that's what you're saying is, like, if an Embiid, say, or a Towns reaches the point where to actually be a successful basketball team, you have to be, you know, if they became, say, just say, like, they ended up on, like, a, you know, 
very good playoff team somehow. It's like you would, you can't just be, other teams could not just be like caught out there with no answer. And in, in a way, like the better you are and the more of a shadow you cast over the league, the more you can actually play a role in dictating what shape the game takes. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's like part of me is like, yeah, there's not that many of those guys, but we just rattle off enough of them that there's like, you know, you can say there's that, that there are, I think the other thing is like they're all on bad teams or at least like at best mediocre teams. Like we've yet to actually see whether a team can be an elite team building around one of these like new guard centers. That said, I think if you put Embiid on the Warriors, you'd be just fine. He'd be you know? awesome. Like, yeah. No, yeah. No, no part of me thinks that he like couldn't keep up or would clog the lane or would like, you know, contract the court in any way, you know, or would, would just like be like, Calling the ball in the post. I mean, he's just, that's just not, it's almost like I'm waiting, I'm waiting for small ball to catch up with the idea of having these advanced centers. But you're right, like they would have to, these are, despite there being more than a few of them out there, they are still, I mean, they're, you know, this is the unicorn thing. Like these, the guys are all singular players. You can't count on up there being another one of them. And they are all interesting and different in their own right. And that's why the Sixers are the great hope, because the Sixers have the best chance of building a good team around their their unicorn because of the assets that they have and the cap flexibility. I'm not saying they're going to do it, but they have the best chance at it because of the assets that they have. And so I want them to succeed because I want to see if it works. And I always want to get those intellectual tests as best we can have. There's still a chance that it can happen, you know, in Minnesota, of course. I'm not writing them off in any way. But Philly is the best shot. Mm-hmm. Which is also just a weird thought that we're looking at a team that Ben Simmons is yet to play a game and B played 31 games this year. Like, you know, I guess Sarge is like a, you know, we're getting to see what he can do really now. But I mean, it's like, I think there's this bizarre thing that's happened with the Sixers where first he was like reviled, then it became kind of this in joke. Then Embiid has sort of made it seem like maybe he was on to something. And now I feel like, you know, what you're saying now, and I kind of on some gut level of, helped this for a while it's like oh the Sixers maybe have kind of done something right and they may actually if not even if it's a little specious because say they end up being able to build if not you know a championship team at least like a playoff team in this vein we're talking about using the players that they were able to acquire via the nefarious process it's not as if Hinky necessarily like set out but I, I just think it's like yeah you can't say this was all part of his master plan but it becomes just a little harder to, I mean, not not just harder to make fun of him, but it's also like, well, you at some point have to look at the Sixers and say, oh, things are not totally dystopic there. And this team that we thought was a laughing stock may actually have successfully paved the way for something that we could all get very excited about. The other element that is a little bit separate from the process, but might end up being a huge part of their success is the capitalization on the Kings being bad. And so they, you know, basically the Kings traded away a swap rights, which might become relevant this year. And then a, what became an unprotected first round pick, which will be in 2019 for, I think it was about 15 million in cap space, which they pretty much used on Rajon Rondo. That wasn't rigidly a part of the process. It was in the way that they wanted to maintain flexibility. And one of the easy, and one of the benefits of flexibility is that you can then, extract a a ransom for it so that part of it was but you don't do that with the anticipation of another team making that stupid a trade and so I become obsessed over time and this is something also with the Celtics picks with when a team can get 
high quality assets that are unrelated to their own success, because then if they start winning, it doesn't mean that they're done. And so the Sixers, mm-hmm. I, I it might take them a little longer, especially considering it feels like all of their good players are hurt all the time. But they have that means eventually, you know, 2019 is still a couple years away to improve. And what they're betting on is not themselves being bad for another couple of years, which is possible too. They're betting on one of the league's greatest disasters staying a disaster. And that's a really good bet. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's like that. I mean, you're right. It's not, that's, that is not part of sort of the doctrinaire process, but it's, you know, it's still a hinky move, right? Right. I mean, this is like this weird rehabilitation of hinky that I find, I, I don't know if it's wholly warranted, but it's, it's definitely like interesting well, to there, watch. There's, a, there's like, another element of it for people like me who, I, I can't say that I can take any credit for that, but who didn't believe he needed rehabilitating in the first place. And so for, for me, it's more like I was on board the whole time. And now that the dialogue is changing, it's it's like those of us who are in that mode, just pushing it a little bit harder because then it means we were right before. Yeah, I think I think I did a thing. Kevin Arvitz, like when um, when that letter came out and because I'm an idiot on Twitter, uh, I just started making fun of it. And Kevin hit me up and he was like, Hinky was like, maybe not. You know, there's a lot that's like about that letter that's like kind of fatuous. He, just, he didn't say this, but I mean, to sort of paraphrase. He was basically like, yes, there are things about that letter you can make fun of, but at the end of the day, Hinky was sort of like, you know, the egghead, the nerd, the like quasi-intellectual in, in the room full of jocks. And you can agree or disagree with him, but the, the, at the end of the day, like he was speaking about this in a way that was like far more conceptual and far more, not even like analytics rational, just like in this bizarre analytical way that was I mean, who, it, it was, I hate saying this, it was so outside the box that really, you know, you do have to have a lot of respect for the fact that someone decided to run a sports team thinking that way. Because well, he basically, like, did throw out the blueprint, you know? He was like, how can I reimagine how you would go about trying to be successful? I, I like that we're having this conversation, because I'm pretty confident you don't know this, but I was just at the uh, the Sports anal- the sports Innovation Conference at Stanford, and the opening keynote was Sam Hinkie talking to Henry Abbott about lots of things. And my biggest takeaway, and this was also true in the Chris Ballard piece that was, I think it was about a year ago. No, it was more recent than that because it was at post Sixers. And my biggest takeaway, and I mean this largely as praise, is that Sam Hankey is wired incredibly differently from almost not only every other person that I've met in basketball, but almost every other person that I've met, period. And (laughs) that lent itself to doing things differently in ways that were both positive and negative. I mean, in the positive realm, the idea of wholeheartedly embracing the strategy that is most likely to get your team star level talent is a great thing. I I think that teams should, should approach that more brazenly more often. However, he was a little bit too open and a little bit too cavalier, in my opinion, about that pursuit. And that is really what made the problems later on, because it allowed people to sharpen their knives and took away plausible deniability. And going back on my political background, one of the greatest mistakes that people make is giving their opposition ammunition, whether it's fair or it's not. And that was a part of the way that it was handled that ended up at the time becoming a little bit unfair 
but was also inevitable when somebody wants to do something that is so different and so brazenly different than what we've seen before. It's funny because you bring up like politics as a metaphor here. Like I think of Hinky as like, you know, uh, I should tread lightly here. It's, he, he almost, he reminds me, I mean, he's very much a theory over practice guy, you know? It's clear that he had this in his head as an idea and then was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act on this. You know, because it, it does make a lot of sense as, as a conceptual construct. When you actually get into the realities of the world, it starts to be a little harder to pull off. It starts to have sort of like weird blowback and repercussions. You know, I mean, again, like I think we're seeing that maybe just as a strict plan of action, it was viable in a way that a lot of us, including myself, didn't quite grasp at the time. But, you know, just the practical realities of it are that, like, there was going to be resistance to it. He was going to be, like, laughed. I mean, I guess that's just the price of being a visionary ahead of your time or whatever. But it does kind of, like, in a weird way strike me as, like, a hardcore Marxist or something, you know, who's just going to come in and, like, impose this ideology on the universe and kind of pick up the pieces later. Um, even if, you know, unlike Marxism, you know, history is proving so I think you're right. Um, <laughs> And I and I think I think and I, I don't really know how to exactly this ties in, but I think, you know, part of the difference part of the institute being a general manager, being a coach, you do get that the distance he has or had from I don't want to say the way basketball works and obviously he understands basketball, but kind of like you would only think that way, and this is what I think Kevin was kind of pointing me towards. You only think that way if you weren't fully of that world, right? Like if your thinking was not wholly conditioned by having to exist in sport, in basketball, you know, in the thick of it all the time. Because otherwise, like, there's just no way that you would end up where he ended up if you weren't capable of, like, pulling back in an extreme way. I think what's interesting is even if you talk about, like, Popovich, who is, you know, Popovich is not an ideologue. He likes systems, but that's not the same thing as being, being rigid. That's not the same thing as, like, not at all accommodating the talent he has. Um, and I think I feel like that's kind of the undervalued thing about Popovich is like he may put the system first, but the system is responsive. The system is going to, you know, be always influenced by the talent he has. Um, I don't know why I'm still talking about Popovich again. I think because you know, just the, the very notion of a system in, bas- in the actual game of basketball is always, it's always going to be um, a more flexible construct than, you know, a system that you can um, implement as a general manager. Just because, like, you're dealing with, like, human assets who you have to interact with that you have to, like, mold and you have to, like, make very, like, uh, you know, quick, granular, real-time decisions and you've got to, like, process a lot of information. You know, you're just you're just not – I mean, one, like, you're, you, you are yourself as a coach a part of the system in some ways because you can't just sort of, like, marionette it and, uh, or puppet master it and not have some sort of yourself implicated in it. But it's also just like if anyone is a good coach, and obviously Popovich is a good coach, is not just you know this isn't like you know, crusty high school basketball where you draw up the play and then give people their marching orders. Even if there is kind of this like exalted form of basketball that everyone's uh, invested in and also kind of like in awe of or whatever, I think bringing that to life is still like a very organic process. Um, I don't know why I just had to get in that thing. I, I just felt like, I, I just was thinking about everything we talked about. That's like just thinking about systems in relation to Popovich. I feel like maybe I was selling him short earlier because I think you just cannot be a wholly abstract thinker and be a successful coach. I'll try to bring, bring those together with two separate thoughts. One is I think that the big part 
of what Sam Hankey did was the identification of him separate from being a basketball lifer like Popovich. So and that, that matters in two different ways. One, it matters in terms of being a little bit more distant from the human cost of what they were doing, you know, like in the immediate, you know, being the players and coach of that team just losing a ton of games. But also in the sense that I think he was far more open to, and we're seeing this with like, he talked a little bit at the end of that about, you know, like his, his approach to getting another NBA job and that he's, you know, he's kind of open to it, but it's not what he feels like he has to do. And that is not the way most general managers think about being a general manager. And I think both of those elements were very important in why why he was able to do it and other people have not but also why it was kind of it was more likely to fail before it got a chance to succeed and then tying back to Popovich what I think when when you going through that that kind of great point about the system and the system being variable what I kept thinking about was Phil Jackson and Jackson is an amazing coach he's he had a kind of a specialty which he nailed through his career but one of my biggest criticisms of him, and this has been manifested even more strongly as the team president, is that his system, his his ethic with the triangle and everything else, was so predicated on having elite talent that I think that maybe, I, I'm not going to say he got overrated because that's unfair, but that Popovich deserves additional appreciation for being able to maximize talent in a very different way than Phil did. I mean, I, I think... Saying, I think it's it's it is very easy to kick Phil Jackson while he's down, and also, uh, which he is right now, obviously in a major way. And it's also very easy, given you know the fact that he's won more titles than anyone in history, it's easy to sort of be skeptical of him. That said, you know you can't imagine <laughs> Phil without Tex Winter, and Tex Winter, it's almost like he was very much that like uh, which which part of your brain is the rational side of the left or right? It's the left part, right? Because the opposite of your hands. Yeah, I think that's the way it is, right? and I think the right is more creative. Right, so Phil's, I mean, you know, just to, maybe this doesn't work exactly, but it's like, you can't have, like, even, like elite elite talent thing aside, if you would just put Phil out there without the triangle, what would have happened? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that, that, makes, uh, that makes it even easier to be skeptical of him, because then it's like, okay, fine, you had this, like, particular knack for managing egos and creating a sense of unity and, you know, like we said about what LeBron does is so important, figuring out, like, what makes guys tick and how you can, like, make them feel engaged and involved at all times. But then it's like, clearly that was not enough to win titles, or else we would not be talking about Tex winning the way we always do. And I, I think that's like, and Popovich, you know, Popovich is, he is both someone who is very good at dealing with players as people and knowing how to sort of get the most out of them in that way. And then he's also obviously just like a superb basketball mind. And I mean, not that it's funny. People don't really rank coaches much, you know, like when is what, who, when does anyone ever said, I think the greatest coaches of all time are so-and-so and so-and-so, you know what I mean? I think everyone knows who'd be in the conversation, but you don't have like greatest of all time debates about coaches, especially not um, the way we do about but, players. No, exactly. I mean, like how many, what is, what's the, what's the coach equivalent of Jordan versus MJ or Jordan versus LeBron? You know, is it Phil and Arbach? Because I've never, literally never seen that argument break out on Twitter. Yeah, I, I think um, the, the other part of it that probably hurts it is that it's it's a more abstract argument, and because it, when when you involve Red, which you probably would be in many of these, he was so distant that it's different than Michael Jordan. Like, if we're using Twitter or even media members our age or are older, we remember Michael Jordan. 
Like it is, it's a very visceral thing. And with, with red, it gets more complicated. And, and also it was a very different league. You'd get into all this stuff about, you know, just, just a lot of the differences between the NBA now and the NBA then. But I still think that there are people capable of having that conversation. Or maybe, maybe it's also, it's like, I mean, but it's weird. Like you'd think that, you know, as much as I remember one time, I don't know, I've been drunk or something. There was something that wasn't quite right about me, but I went on a big, like, LeBron Grace of all time Jag and Curtis Harris, who as you know, as everyone knows, is like actually a legitimate historian of basketball, went on a parallel tear about how ridiculous the myth of the greatest all time was. There's also the Yago Coles has talked about a lot. And I frankly have no idea why I ever have subscribed to that in any way, because I'm pretty sure there's a chapter in one of the three darker books that's about how it's a myth. So I'm not sure why on one fateful night I decided to like embrace it wholeheartedly. But <laughs> every every Anything you can say, and this is a lot of what Curtis was saying about sort of, you know, the relativism of players, you'd think that with coaches, it would be harder, it'd be easier to not be relative, you know, because titles are titles and coaching is coaching. And you aren't, unless, you know, unless you were to say something like coaching today's stars is harder than coaching the stars of yesteryear because the stars of yesteryear were more like blah, which again, I've never heard anyone make that claim though. I mean, it, it fundamentally turns into like, how many titles did they win? How good, you know, for their era were the players that they played that played under them? How, you know, did were they capable of getting the most out of the talent they had? Uh, what, you know, sort of innovations did they bring to the game? And then just sort of anecdotally, like, were they good leaders? You can totally compare them because they're they're general they're generalities. They're not so like mired up in the in like the nature of the game. Then, you know, I feel like fully capable of uh, comparing Popovich and Phil as coaches, even mm-hmm. though, I mean, I guess Phil actually, you know, Phil obviously did coach into overlap with Popovich, but I mean, it, you know, like heyday Bulls, Phil and Popovich still seem like totally comparable. And maybe that's still not enough separate. In fact, it's probably almost none. No, that's not even any separation. Okay. That's a bad example, but you know, well, you could say like, like, of- like Westhead, like Westhead or Nelly and D'Antoni, that would be one. Yeah. 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 And that is totally doable. And you know, People, when people talk about also, you know, the other thing too is like coaches, and this is, I think, a better thing to do with my attempt at a Phil Alvish chronology. Coaches remain constant over time, even as the game changes, because they're still, they're sort of, they're the ones shaping the game, even as the game changes. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, the push and pull, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, time marches on, but if you're a strong enough figure, you also are within that able to sort of like shift things and make them sort of continue to pack in your direction. Or, you know, if you're Popovich, also remain mutable, so you really are never passed by. But I think in the case of Phil, it was always just like, fine, be such a strong team that no one can ever ignore or discount the way you do things, which part of his reliance on superstars, because, you know, he needed them to be able to do that. But yeah, and I think that that's the thing with Nelly, right? It's like, Nelly is like, is like several decades worth of doing the same kind of weird stuff, albeit like with different kinds of players in very different eras and with their very different results. There is a consistency to what Nelly did in basketball that is not wholly sort of contingent on what was going on in basketball at the time. Like he, again, you know, he was able to always carve out a different niche for himself. And I think that's kind of, again, why coaching does seem like something that does not exist in this like wholly relative state. You do things, they're influential, they're not influential, they're relevant, they're not relevant, you keep doing them. Uh, your moment comes again. Someone else picks up on something he did. You know, like you, you become like a constant of the game if you coach long enough. And you know, and, and like I said, the takeaways from coaching are just like 
fundamentally like there are a lot there are more broad strokes you know mm-hmm. like you know part of like the silliness of comparing like you know you say like oh who had the who's who's like whose go-to move was harder to defend or like what would so-and-so have done in this identical situation? It's like, I don't think anyone with coaches is like, well, you know, if, if Phil had had to call that play, he would have done this. You know, it just doesn't really go there. Yeah, it also, like, y- y- you have this challenge that I think is actually interesting with coaches and different than with players where you don't have to evaluate the talent in as rigid a way. You can just say, oh, well, how much better or worse were they than their overall competition? How much did they actualize talent? I think that's a little bit less specific than sometimes what we get into in terms of supporting casts and players, like individual one-on-one, like who has, who's the better three-point shooter, all that, all that kind of stuff. I feel like with coaches, it is totally fine to be a little bit more broad, a little bit less specific, and that also makes it easier to compare across eras. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a that's a better way of putting what I was attempting to get at. And it's just like, and I think there's also like, it is always, I think, easier. I think at this point, like basketball fans are like ridiculously well-educated in terms of like how the game works and how what people are thinking and how decisions are made. Um, but I think on, again, this goes back to that sort of like, what is it that makes us love basketball? I think there's something we can just get way more invested in argument about how players play both uh, as compared to one another than we can like what a coach would think or what a coach might do or who had the best, who had the best offense. And it's like, that's totally different than like, again, that very visceral thought of like, well, LeBron does this. Oh, well, Jordan did that. It's like, you can see those in your head. You can get excited about them. If we try and compare like Popovich and Red Arbach, like what am I going to do? Like run through clips of like great sets that Popovich has drawn up. You know, you just don't have that same connection. That passion that people bring to like the greatest of all time argument is like largely spurred by, I think people being like just incredibly like amped to talk about players playing basketball. Yeah. And I just don't think coaches move people in that same way. Maybe they should. I don't know. Maybe they do move some people that way. They probably should, but I understand why that's that's a very different thing and it's also it's it's also a different connection to the sport itself. And you know, I think a lot of people can identify, you know, who's good and who's bad, but then gradations in there can get complicated and I mean you could even look at who wins coach of the year. I mean, coach of the year is often not won by who the best coaches. It's won by whose team surprised the most, which is usually due to a mis misevaluation of their talent. So, you know, that it it is a part of that equation as well, but there is some there is some space for it. But I mean, we've we've gone in a lot of different directions, and I feel like I, at some point I I I have to sadly enough for my own purposes because I've enjoyed the ever loving crap out of this to to let it go and just thank you so much for for taking the time. No, thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Nathaniel for taking the time to come on. You can read him at GQ and the Victory Journal. You can follow him on Twitter at FreeDarko, F-R-E-E-D-A-R-K-O. I love this conversation. I love the way it happened, and it was really spontaneous and spur of the moment. And it, of course, led to it flowing organically between different topics. And I, I just, it was an absolute pleasure for me. And Part of the reason it was an absolute pleasure for me is because Free Darko as a site, which of course was more than Nathaniel, was a lot of different amazing people, but it was a big part of what made me want to write about basketball and what helped me connect with the sport. I'm looking up at my bookshelf and see both of their books and it was greatly important to me. And a short story was that when I started, so I started with Real GM back in 2009 and I was... You know, I was in law school and I was, you know, I was in my early 20s and 
I had gotten into it, as I said, through Free Darko. And I started with draft stuff, and then I lived in the Bay Area, so Real GM approached me about, you know, they're like, where do you live? Maybe you can cover the team. I said I live close to the Warriors, so I started covering the Warriors. And right before that, I wish I remembered the author. Somebody on Free Darko did a really cool kind of graphical thing. And I thought it was a, it, it was an inspiring idea. And so I was like, wow, what the hell? I'll send an email to the site, or who, I can't even remember how I did that, to say if I could get, you know, used to, to give credit to it and to do all that. Because I, ne- I never do that, especially in those days, without permission, you know, with something like that and making sure. Because if it has the attribution on it, of course, I'll do it. But otherwise, you know, I want to make sure that it's in there and, and everything else. And that's permission. And so I sent an email to the person I knew as Bethlehem Shoals and said, I'm sure you don't know who I am, Daniel LaRue. I wrote for the small site Vegan Fish Tacos, and I'm going to start writing about the Warriors, and I would love to use this if I can get your permission. And I don't think I have it anymore, but the response was like six words, and it was, I know who you are, feel free to use it. And it made my month, really. Like It was one of those things, like the fact that somebody who... I respected and enjoyed and and provided so much value for me was aware of it and then provided that support. And, you know, that helped give momentum to the work that I started with real GM then and, you know, working on all sorts of stuff, making a living covering the warriors in the NBA now. And while a lot of that was, you know, my own work and support from people like Chris Rain at real GM, another part of it was getting that sort of support from other writers, from people who I, who I want. And so I always remember things like that and always try to do my best to support people when I can outside of that. It was, it was a major inspiration for me. So wanted to tell that story quickly. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot this show or really any other show. There are a lot of different things that you can do. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. That's great for Real Jam Radio in particular because the episodes come out sporadically. You know, it's once a week pretty much, but the day changes because my schedule is too busy for me to say they're coming out on Wednesdays or anything like that. So you can do that. It's it's a very good way to support the show. And then of course, another huge, huge thing you can do to support us is to check out our sponsors. So this week, new sponsor is Harry's. Great way to get a shave. You can go to harrys.com slash real GM and you can try their their trial kit for free with a small shipping shipping charge. Check it out. It's awesome. I'm using it right now. Can also movement watches mvmtwatches.com slash real gm 15% off, including free shipping and free returns. And then SeatGeek. You can you download the free SeatGeek app, S-E-A-T-G-E-E-K, and go to the settings tab, use the promo code real gm r-e-a-l-g-m, and you get $20 free on your first purchase. So basically you buy the tickets and then they will send you $20 back. It's pretty awesome. So you can do all of those things as well. It's an awesome way to to get something cool. They're all products that I use and know and that are supporting the show. And so the more you peruse, the more you buy, the more it says, hey, look, they're coming from this. So that's big. Another really cool thing, uh, I'm part of the CLNS radio family, which I really do enjoy. And they're doing an awesome thing right now as well. So they're doing an NCAA tournament kind of bracket challenge. And so you can win up to $500 in prizes from Amazon, Blue Apron, MainEntree.com, and SeatGeek. And you just submit your March Madness bracket in the free CLNS radio challenge. 
it's free. You're competing against, you know, all the hosts on CLNS. I'm sure Sam Vecini is going to be a part of it myself, Larry Russell, lots of great people. And so you can just follow and direct message at CLNS radio on Twitter and they will give you the information on it. I believe it's an ESPN bracket and I'll be a part of it. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do many public brackets this year. I haven't watched much college basketball, but I still have a lot of people that I can lean on and rely on to, to see how it works. So if you have fun with that, and of course there are prizes, so that's also awesome. So again, just follow CLNS radio on Twitter. That's enough promoing. I think for now, I legitimately loved this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as well. It's a template of one of the types of things I like to do with Real Jam Radio. And so I will continue doing that moving forward. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, at Daniel LaRue on Twitter, or even better, NBA at gmail.com. As I always say, if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I cannot promise I will respond, but I will take the time to do it. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea, Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get Thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. You want to go. Yes. Go travel. Go explore. Go find a new city. Go reconnect with friends. Go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free. And you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.